Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border, and welcome to 2020. I would like to start this year with something, you know, positive, because we'll get to really dark and edgy stuff later on. We will have a lot of politics to talk about in Eastern Europe and Russia, and, well, something considering Iran, too. And I am actually planning on going to a trip to North Korea, but that involves a lot of planning, because, you know, it took me six months to get to Donbass with all the research and everything. This might take more, but that's kind of a goal, well, even if they will allow me to have a visa. But I just wanted to start off this year by telling you some stories from the people that I've heard, because since I've moved to Ludza, I've been busy, I've been doing interviews, been running around, and also my neck has been in, like, real trouble lately, so I couldn't record uh, too much extra serious stuff and just, you know, starting a year in a lighter note seems like a great idea what to do because last year's been super heavy and it's been depressing. So how about we start this year with something nice and, and cool, such as blatant theft, how people stole money in the Soviet era. And we're going back to the basics and all the people's studies because everything was just a bit crazier back then. And we'll be talking about the Brezhnev's era, about the 70s, you see. And now, I mentioned the economics episode, how everything was built and done in the Soviet era, and I'm gonna be focusing on this episode on the fact that, well, a lot of people ask me, why weren't the Soviet products, you know, why weren't the quality standards high enough? And then you understand that everything was stolen and everything was basically traded away in a smugly, underhanded kind of way. And I want to give you some examples from the studies that I've heard so that you would understand this better. Because this is really fun study. I'll start with the most radical scam, which uh, happened, and then we'll move to more, like, standard uh, circumstances. You see, in the Caucasus republics, like Azerbaijan or Georgia or Armenia, there this kind of black market, blatnoi culture, all this scam thing, was just gone crazy. There was... Uh, this story that a friend of mine here told, whom I interviewed for other purposes for the Michael newspaper, but he was involved being in this checking committee, you see. Over there in the Caucasus, they uh, built a school. Well, uh, sort of. 
Because again, everything was bought and paid for in the USSR, even before it began any construction. But in the Caucasus Republics, yeah, these guys were the supreme masters of everything organized of like, let's steal this stuff from literally everyone. And it showed. So, the buildings in the Soviet Union, they weren't built by, you know, private investors who paid money for them. Everything was state-owned and state-built. So, in modern day, if you um, pay for a building to be built and then you find defects, then you either A, sue the guys who built it, or B, just don't pay them until they build it. It's very simple, right? In the Soviet era, as everything was built by the state, and everyone had their plans to fulfill, and was like a lot of quality stuff going on, they had these very specific approval committees. So, if the Soviet government decides to build a new school, or a new culture house, or a new kolkhoz, then when the project is finishing up, when it's close to being completed, then they would send people from also the Communist Party and the state apparatus to basically check on the building and test how well it was done. And we'll get to the professional people who were just employed into these offices whose only job was to get buildings done, but yeah, this happened so that if you wanted to build something and you wanted to get everything done, you basically needed the signatures of this approval committee, who were also extremely corrupt. And as everything had been stolen, and everything had been like built without really giving any crap about what's going on, you know, you basically had to trick these committees into signing your papers to get off any real trouble. But again, we'll get some specific points here, but um, just to show a single, very radical example of how this worked. So in Caucasus, a new school building is built. And of course, this gets approved by the acceptance committee, and it begins to function. And, and you know, people get hired officially, and the teachers get paid salaries and such, and, and the technical personnel also gets paid salaries, and everyone just, you know, school's built, started working, everything's happy. And it's unknown for how long this school would continue to function as is, and would uh, continue to do its glorious job of spreading proletariat knowledge among the masses of the glorious tales about Leninism and Marxism. But, you know, at some point Moscow decided to take some control of the quality of education in the various uh, outlier republics, such as the Caucasus ones, because they also knew how much of literally everything was being stolen. Now, the problem was that they sent a commission there, totally unexpected, and like a really unexpected one. Usually they would come up with a warning or something beforehand, and people who knew other people would warn that the commission would be coming, you know, just so they would get out of trouble. But this Moscow commission, of which my source was a part of, yeah, you know, they went to this Caucasus school, and they wanted to check it personally, and according to all the reports and papers, it had been functioning for months, and everything seemed fine. But when they arrived at the site, in the village where this brand new school had been built, like, not even signs of a building there was found. And people in the village were surprised about that they even had a new school, because all the kids had to be driven 15 kilometers daily, that's about like 10 miles or so, maybe 12. They had to be driven that daily to the place where they were actually studied, because there was no school. And for about a half a year, the imaginary teachers at this imaginary school had even been paid for, because literally everything had been stolen. But the plan had to be completed, on paper at least. Now, obviously there was a massive scandal, but it all eventually evaporated in this whole mess of a thing. Because, as per usual, officially, nobody knew nothing. Like, at all. Now, this is just insane, because obviously every building material ever that had been sent to build the school had just evaporated. 
And this seems like a mystery, but it really isn't. This is the response to one of the paradoxes of the USSR. There's nothing in the stores, but everyone gets everything done anyways. And, well, this is how. Brutal, complete, and utter thievery. With literally zero moral or ethical regrets. However, doing this thing this blatantly would be insane in normal circumstances. Normally, you actually would have to build, you know, at least something. This level of theft, which happened in the Caucasus, would have to be approved by the highest communist party authorities of the Republic. Because, you know, the standard people who wanted to build something or renovate something would usually just do something dealing, you know, shadily with their closest construction site. But not on this scale. So this scale is somewhat truly mind-numbingly insane. So basically, if you wanted to build or renovate anything in the USSR, you would always go to the closest construction site. As the person who told me the study said, those who actually would go to a Home Depot analog would be seen as miserable, mentally ill people with nothing better to do with their time and lost to all sanity or hope. These people would be considered extremely naive souls that we as humanity should take pity for and probably pay disability payments for, you know. Yeah, because I get some sort of crazy characters in Woods now and then. Because going to an actually construction store would be considered just idiotic. Being honest was considered a bit idiotic. But if you're listening to my show normally, then you know that that's a standard at this point. Of course, you can't really say that the Home Depot stores didn't sell anything. But obviously, if they even got anything worth buying, then those things were stolen and sold under the counter, completely overpriced, or traded for favors, or you had to know the person selling them, you know, stuff like that. It's kind of like, if you got something actually that people want to buy, you would just give them to your friends for uh, good quality vodka or, or spare parts for your car or stuff. Basically, you want to fix your place up? Well, tough luck. Because all the things you can get in the store are completely crap, useless, and will not do anything to you. However, there was a unique thing that the construction stores sold illegally that were completely unique to the Soviet Union and that really uh, described this whole system of organized corruption. Namely, receipts for various building materials or stuff for renovation. They served as the legal proof that you have legally purchased the building materials that you could obviously stolen elsewhere, which you could then show to the OBHSS commission as a proof that you in fact had not stolen all the stuff which you used to build your own dacha. It was a win-win situation. The salesperson steals and illegally sells the good building materials to his buddies, and you get a neat receipt to show to the officials about the building stuff that you have stolen yourself for a decent yet not a reasonable price. Black market was a complex and intricate system in the Soviet Union, with fraud covering for theft, covering for damages, covering for even more theft. The OBHSS had nothing to do with the Nazis. It is an abbreviation for Adjel Barbi Schichinium Socialistiskoi Sobstinnosti, or the Department of Combating the Theft of Socialistic Property. This special internal ministry department was there to investigate the <clears throat> economical crimes against the country. And as in that era, Literally, any private business was a crime, and Soviets had a thriving black market. Yeah, you know. They were there to combat basically everything. People who worked there had a very comfortable life. As long as they weren't caught by the internal KGB services, obviously, because 
again, these are crimes covered by more crimes, because if you got the spot there, then you could lead a very happy life living just on bribes. So basically, to make understand things even better, like to summarize this, if you wanted to build or fix something as a Soviet person, you had to acquire the materials, which are simply not available at stores, and you had to purchase receipts that show that you legally had purchased them at a store, even though no stores actually had them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And the Soviet person was smart and capable enough to deal with this uh, minor issue. These receipts, by the way, were usually pre-purchased before thieving things. And this is where we come to the people's stories, really. This person I got this from during his college years worked as a night guard in a construction site. And this follows us as with minimal editing, really, because apparently the people assigned to this worked in 24-hour shifts. And even during the very first day of work, three people visited the guard post. And none of them even asked if they could buy something, but instead, hey dude, have uh, the prices stayed the same? And when can we uh, be coming over to pick up the stuff up, you know? Because the idea that someone might not steal something would just be unthinkable. Things requested included concrete, bricks, floorboards, materials for isolation, you know, like the glass cotton thing, glass planes and tiles. Obviously, it was a bit scary for the young guard, but peer pressure is a thing. And obviously, personal profits make one very interested, as in Soviet Union, there was this commonplace insult and kind of a joke, may you live just from your own salary, as that was considered a very grievous condemnation and somewhat of a curse. And you can raise a question about whether or not people were afraid to do this, because, you know, once restarting the work in the next morning, the workers or the brigadier, the chief in, in charge of this whole operation, yeah, you know, someone would probably notice that, hey, we're missing out on things. And this is an explanation. You see, knowing the utterly, devastatingly crap quality of literally every building material in the Soviet Union, every manager asked the State Department for way more than was necessary. For example, if you needed like, you know, a thousand bricks to build a wall, then you would ask for 1500, just to be sure, because everything you'd receive, like one third of it, would be just unusable crap. And secondly, logistics were non-existent and chaos reigned everywhere. All the building materials were spread out around the building territory on the building site, and nothing was put in the warehouses and accounted for. Like, you know, you'd get a pallet of bricks, it was just put in one corner, another pallet would be another corner, concrete was just, you know, some random bags thrown around the place, because the people who delivered this stuff, they were just not interested themselves. They just really didn't care. So they would just arrive, dump things out, and leave. So everything was just a chaotic mess. So nobody even knew 
how much of the necessary stuff was delivered and how much would be delivered in the future. Except the guy who ran the works, that is. But, as those guys were the first to trade off their own stolen shit, and they were the guys who reaped the most profits, if something went missing, after that it was just written off as defective products and, well, even more was requested from the government. Again, nobody cared. At all. Unless it was for personal use. And you know, the average sales of these construction materials, they weren't that huge either. You know, a standard car pops up, fills the trunks with bricks or bags of concrete, and you know, that was the limit. It was done so to spread out the risks, because, you know, you can't buy a, an immense amount of bricks in one construction site, you have to buy like a, a handfuls of them from various sites, you know, what if, what if someone's a reporter so you could get off easier and you have receipts for whatever you have, just, you know, to be sure. And during the work period of my source here, nobody ever, like, at all, even brought up the fact that something's missing. And this sort of proves the truthfulness of the statement of old Kramzin. Mr. Kramzin is one of my used sources in the Stalin series, and he was one of the most famous Russian historians. And, and he also kind of documented the history first, because he um, writes about the very early Bolshevik things. He was one of the very earliest sources who wrote about the descent in Russia in general, and, and when I started out the Stalin series, Lenin series, he was one of kind of a, the prime movers, because he's a historian of a very late Russian Empire. And when the Tsar, our good old friend Nicky, asked him to describe and characterize the Russian history of what's happening in late 19th century Russia, because, you know, that's where all the decabrists are happening, and if you listen to Mike Duncan, you know about this, and he basically responded, uh, properly responded in Old Church Slavonic. Kramzin said, well, what's happening in Russia? Theft. This is not a new thing. But I have to say that Soviets perfected being a scoundrel to an art form. And literally everything was stolen everywhere where you could actually steal things. Because in the hospitals, nurses traded spirits away. People running gas stations dealt illegal gasoline. And this is, by the way... The reason why the, our local Latvian built VEF radios and cassette players and tape players were considered really good in the Soviet Union. You see, when making radios, you have to wash the parts for it in pure ethanol. And over here, only about 40-50% to of all the ethanol was stolen. Which was a ratio more closer to about 90-95% to 95% in various other Soviet republics. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for a new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to our Patreons. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash theeasternborder to find out how you too can support our show. To keep up to date with all things Eastern Border, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't hesitate to send us a message with your comments and questions. That's it for now. Thank you for listening and see you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! Okay, and now guys, before we move on, I want to do a special advertisement segment here, which I normally, the ads get put in standardly, but this is for my buddy Chris, Christopher, because when I had my phone troubles, when my iPhone 6s Plus just died, Chris was extremely kind to send me a brand new phone because he's a dude who has a day job, but his hobby is knitting. And he's an extremely decent person and 
I want you all to support his business because he's now starting to knit things and like custom knitted stuff like scarves and hats and whatever you want. And if you want to check out his work, Google up Knitter in Kiev. And his email is knitterinkeef at outlook.com or just at knitterinkeef on Twitter, I presume. So the thing is, he loves to knit as a part of his hobby and he's now starting to make it more businesslike. And he'll basically knit whatever you need with anything on it and i've seen of some beautiful scarves and, and flags and everything with some nice little um so to speak <clears throat> the glorious green smokable herb symbols on it which are just amazing and everything's colorful and he's a real professional and just a great guy and i think that you should really check him out and i'll leave more links in the show notes and everything but just check out knitter and neef and email him if you want anything knitted for you that's a dude who's not turning his hobby into a business and it's like awesome and if you want to message him and get like more stuff directly because hey i'll be leaving this in the show notes and i'll be talking about this in future episodes it's just that well, we haven't really organized that much and we haven't like really an ad program worked out, but I want to help this guy as he helped me out and I trust him and he's amazing. But if you want, you know, just message him or use WhatsApp International for plus one six zero five eight four six three one six six. That is plus one for the United States, obviously. If you're in the United States, just skip this. But plus one six zero five oh four six three one six six. That's for sms messages or whatsapp if you're an international customer but hey if you want a great nice scarf in this cold winter weather if you want something cool done for you scarf or a hat or something from a guy who really loves his knitting uh, who really brings it to the next level and who's really supportive of his show you know support a comrade he's just like you except that he's actually helped me a lot and i want to promote whatever creative stuff other people are doing on the show so again knitting in the keef Number is 1605-046-3166 or knittingandkeef at outlook.com. And I'll tell you more about this in the future because right now I've been just, you know, I've seen some pictures and I've talked to him on Facebook a lot, but I really want you guys to check him out. Please give Knitting in Neef some chance because what's the best gift in this cold weather at this point? You know, get something knitted, hand knitted, by comrades, for comrades. Do check out Chris's work. I guarantee you won't be left disappointed. So, after describing all of this uh, very commonplace thievery in the Soviet Union, well, you gotta ask, well, how did the buildings get built? Well, in the case where there was, like, Moscow centralized projects, they would uh, constantly send people to check because they knew this was going on, it's just that it was this idea that came to mind when I was studying this subject from Peter Kolchin's unfree labor book which compared uh, the united states slavery and the russian serfdom and the thing is that when you have literally no hope like at all you know like in the 70th Soviet union you know you can't really do anything to overthrow the regime but you can do things that improve your own life because you have uttered disregard for the regime because it's like at that point it's not the active oppression of stalin but it's the style depression that's always there so it was kind of this hopelessness feeling that makes you want to improve your own quality of life as a matter of protest this is what my slogan of the show happiness is mandatory comes from because in such a situation you really want to want to be happy for yourself 
as a form of protest. But yeah, in the big projects, they really did push on the governmental controls. And when it came to massive bridges and massive buildings around Moscow or Moscow Olympics, yeah, obviously they did send people who were competent enough and they were under constant KGB surveillance. But when it came to some random schoolhouses or culture houses or new barns for kolkhoz being built in in various republics all over the place then obviously neither uh, people cared as much neither they uh, wanted to do a lot of work there but technically as the soviet union ran on paperwork they had to document everything and the bureaucracy apparatus was huge i mean that's how the communist party really enforced their control and that's what the nomenclature even was this whole bureaucratic control try to push its way, try to eke its way into kind of even provide a semblance of control, even though they knew that, you know, they couldn't really clamp down on this little small-time crime as much, because that was a way how people, you know, when protests are not allowed and debates are not allowed, then this was what people busied themselves with. They were busy stealing things and grabbing little minor bonuses that they could find instead of, you know, holding a revolution because, you know, they couldn't do this because they had no hope. And that is why when some hope appeared in the perestroika era, that is why everything fell apart because then people went from being too busy of, you know, stealing from the government and but in general running things as usual to actively trying to gain independence, you see. And that's kind of this more serious aspect. But back into this kind of control days where everything was just, you know, under strict control and a lot of humorous essays were written about this, is the fact that these committees were sent, basically because all the building and everything was owned by the state and everything was, like, constructed by the state. So whenever in some sort of random bumblefuck middle of nowhere a new barn was built, you know, this uh, fancy committee from the district party leadership uh, or from some surrounding colhosts would arrive and they would have to inspect this building for, you know, quality, because, you know, everyone's a clerk, including the builders. As everything had gotten stolen, then the people who would build these things, they often had kind of some sort of a semi-legal position there. Normally, these people would be posted as, like, planners, constructors, junior engineers, whatever, you know. They had a legal job position, which they didn't fulfill at all. Everything that they did, and the only thing that they did, was to make sure that you entertain the committee who's come to approve of your work so that you could write to the party that, oh, no, no, this this school or this barn or this culture house that's built properly. Yeah, you had the special guy whose job was to just get the papers signed and that's it, by any means necessary. Because everything's been stolen, massive personal profits were made, and now probably half of your village is living in comfort and quite nicely. But you still had to put up the veneer of appearance about all this stuff. You know, you just couldn't do it. Just like that. So, what these people did was that they would just get the committee drunk. Like, ridiculously drunk. And if in the beginning, in the early 60s, you could just, you know, invite your committee members to have a nice little drink with you on a nice little, you know, empty, huge-ass concrete can or whatever with some vodka and sausages. Then later on, it had to be turned into some extravaganza methods with, like, saunas involved and... You know, someone on the construction side was probably celebrating their birthday, even though there was no birthday, obviously, but someone was celebrating their birthday, and people were invited to join in the already pre-scheduled party-approved feast. You know, you kind of smooth them up, you sober them up, kind of to... Well, not sober them up, you get them way drunk, but it's like... You sobered up in the way that, oh, no, no, the, this wall looks shady. We're going we're gonna to build a nicer wall. We're going to fix this. You know, it's 
It's gonna get done eventually. Just sign here on the paper and and let this nice little girl bring you some more drinks. And you know we have a we have a professional juggler in our uh, call halls too. You know, just check him out. Check him out. Just just chill and sign the papers. It was all about this papery stuff. And there are a lot of studies, specifically in the Soviet comedy genre, which is often kind of valid point to kind of use to describe the Soviet realities. The fact that these people went through ingenious means. They uh, oftentimes even would, if you were specifically refusing to sign these papers, then they would even go so far as they would get you drunk, and then they would send nice girls to you, and then they would take pictures of you, and then they would blackmail you. Or, you know, this was kind of normalized because the punishments were strict. Because technically, on paper, as with everything, the Soviet Union had very strict building standards and codes of how to build things and what, how things should be done, except that no one cared and everyone literally ignored them. Sure, there were a small minority of people who, besides the Moscow projects and the Grand Central things, there were some people who honestly did their jobs, and then they had some honest committees, but they were like very few and far in between, and mostly when, for example, some journalists came over, so a journalist who wanted to film the glorious work of the proletariat, they would kind of mess everyone's day up because, you know, then they would pick the specifically selected building site and then the workers there were told, no stealing from this one or we're gonna get into so much trouble because at this point the big Soviet eye from Moscow was on you, so you couldn't steal stuff from your own workplace, which made everyone working there super disappointed. Because I've spoken to people who were into these, like, cinema journals, as they were called here, and they said that whenever they found out that uh, some team of journalists would come and, you know, film their work and how they're getting approved by this committee, yeah, they would be super disappointed because that meant that they couldn't just, you know, steal the building materials from their own homes. And at times, these um, these companies, these these groups of people who would be these approval people, they would even become complacent in all of this. They would start to expect grandiose treatments and massive banquets and parties just for them, because that was the norm, you know. And even if you did a pristine work and actually tried for the glory of communism and you really tried to build something nice... But you didn't welcome the proving committee with a, a huge grandiose attitude, and you didn't try to bribe them in some way or form, and you didn't provide these massive amounts of entertainment, then your job could just get thrown out of the window because, hey, it must be suspicious because they're not actively trying to bribe us what's going on, you know. You didn't sign up for this committee to do actual work. You came here to, well, get paid for doing nothing and just sign off after a long deliberation, after, you know, being treated to all the best niceties that you could have. And that's a kind of interesting part of this Soviet mentality, because that's how everything was built. But there's another story, which I heard on my favorite journalist, Alexander Nevzorov's, uh, one of the latest episodes on his weekdays episode. But when it comes to this approval thing, it's kind of, you know, giving something away. And a lot of people often criticize me for not speaking enough about the good parts of the Soviet Union. But this kind of mentality of acquiring things for yourself and, you know, grabbing what's there to be used for your own profits kind of ties into the next story, which isn't really about the building stuff, but it's about the empty bottles. Because in, in Russian, there's this word zdat. And zdat means basically given off your building to be approved by the committee and you're, you've finally given it away and at the same time giving spare bottles to uh, kind of the kind of deposit exchange point 
that's the same word. So they kind of tie together as well. And that story was just so interesting that it made me go out and grab some materials. But this is a story that characterizes St. Petersburg a lot. And it's fun too. I have about 10 minutes of free time for this episode. And as this is a fun episode, I want to share this with you. So, in this final story, which again, like I said, I heard on Alexander Nevzorov's Nevzorovskiya Sreda, that guy is, as you know, as you heard before, he's my favorite journalist, and he decided to speak about his childhood. He's a 60-something person right now, so this study comes from the 60s. And the trick is that one thing that we miss these days is that Latvia doesn't really have a deposit system for bottles or cans or whatever. But that wasn't so in the Soviet era. I think we kind of got rid of this in the 90s, and that was a stupid mistake to make, because people really, you know, were much more friendlier, as uh, people have told me. Basically, in the Soviet era, you couldn't leave, like, a bottle on the sidewalk without it getting picked up in 10 minutes. Because everything was sold in glass containers. You know, yogurt, sour cream, kefir, uh, mayonnaise and everything. Like, all the dairy products and everything were sold in glass jars. And you could give that jar back for 10 kopecks. That's, like, one-tenth of a ruble. And the jar itself would usually cost, like, what, 70 to 80 uh, kopecks for, a, you know, a jar of uh, sour cream. Meanwhile, beer bottles. Beer bottles went up to 20 kopecks per bottle. While beer itself, due to state-mandated super low prices, would cost about like 50 to 70 kopecks. You know, it's a major return. It's like about, you could get a one-fourth of a bottle back just from that itself. And it was prevalent because, you know, the returns were really, really good. And it was commonplace for just, you know, even regular everyday families, no one threw their jars out because plastic packaging was not a thing. And everyone basically collected jars and bottles and everything. And, you know, it was super commonplace because these places where they took uh, kind of these old used bottles and jars in, they were huge because everyone was doing it. Oftentimes it was considered normal that if you had collected these bottles and jars and whatnot, then, you know, if your teenage kids come over to you and ask for some spare cash to go to the cafe and visit the cinema and whatnot, you just point them at the local cupboard where you have all these empty bottles, and then they would do that. Uh, they would just take these bottles and give them off to the point of collection, and then they would have some money. And the money was substantial, because um, even though you couldn't buy anything in stores, a lot of prices were super cheap, because uh, a relative of mine with her friend, they kind of gave off these bottles, and they got about a ruble and a half each for them, which would be like, you know, about eight to nine bottles of beer each, or lemonade they were given out the same deposit, really. And for one and a half rubles, which roughly translates into about, like, $3 in 60s money, they said that they could go to the sea, they could see a movie in the cinema, and they could have a little coffee in a cafe, and they would still have some money over. But this fact that you got such a large percentage of your value back as a deposit really forced, like, a lot of Soviet citizens to collect these things because they were valuable. And now we move to St. Petersburg, where the studies is happening, because... Well, as Mr. Nevzorov said, and in his day, when he was like about 13, one of the kind of these points, these organized points, was uh, kind of run by a guy who was known as Churchill Ivanovich. He was known as Churchill because he always smoked a Cuban cigar, which in the Soviet Union were extremely cheap because, hey, well, we supported Cuba, so the Cuba had to give us something back so you could get, like, Cuban cigars for really cheap if you were in Petersburg and Moscow. It was a bit difficult here in Riga or in other republics, but, hey, Moscow and Petersburg got preferential treatment, and apparently these things were extremely cheap there. And he also was always in his, like, this butterfly tie thing, which was always kind of, he was super polite and stuff. 
and apparently his point of receiving these bottles was under this huge sign stating that strana zdavai or country donate or give up basically it's it's kind of this uh, parody on an old soviet war movie but he was apparently a very sneaky person because you know everyone in saint petersburg came to this guy because you know major district of petersburg and he's being the person responsible for taking in all the bottles and jars and you know giving out money but he also ran his own like little smugly shady business on the side as Zanyevzorov told in this latest episode basically this guy had a nice little deal with the local clinic in the same district as you know people are often tasked with and asked to give various you know analysis PCs, urine, that sort of stuff. And in the Soviet era, well, people had nothing more than a shit ton of jars and, and bottles in their homes. So a lot of people, when they would be asked to, you know, give out their analyses, they weren't provided with little plastic cups or whatever. They were just told by your family doctor to just, you know, take some analyses and get them to the hospital. So they would literally do that in their little nice jar. And then the hospital or, or the clinic would just, you know, type your name and surname and address and everything on it. Then they would use a little tiny sample of it for analyses, and then they were supposed to dump all the remaining kind of jars with nice little unhygienic material into the waste. But they had an enormous amount of these little jars, so this little guy, Churchill Ivanovich, he decides to make a bit of a profit out of that, using our old nice little smuggling techniques that we learned from our previous part of this episode. So he made a nice little arrangement for some money uh, with the local clinic that instead of driving all this to a landfill and drop them all out there, they would just give him, you know, these little jars full with uh, people's analyses and he would just pay them off some of the profits because remember, 10 kopecks or basically 10 Soviet cents for a jar for a lot of jars is quite a lot of money specifically as i mentioned to you that for a ruble and a half which is like not that much you can still do quite a lot of things you see so it's a lot of money and then the hospital agrees and basically this guy gets to his little nice point where uh, under the sign fifteen thousand of these jars get uh, you know delivered and i mean that's a huge pile fifteen thousand uh, half a liter jars take up a lot of space Except that this guy had been prepared that, you know, analyses usually, you know, you have to have some small amount of your um, biological matter. Uh, but no, people were apparently very active on this. So you have 15,000 jars, 10 kopecks each, a lot of money. But like, they're there. And the guys are just piling them up in boxes upon boxes upon boxes and they stack up a lot. And that's an issue because, you know, if you have a tiny little jar full with uh, biomatter, then that's one thing. If you have 15,000 of those, they start to smell pretty nasty very quickly. And like I said, everyone was giving up their, like, empty bottles and empty jars at that era. So there's a lot of people around and they just see that all these jars are being just, you know, put there in the yard. And the problem lies in the fact that, again, these come from a hospital, so they have everyone's names and surnames and everything, and, well... Some people standing in this line to give up their, like, bunch of collected bottles for deposit money, which is a lot of money in Soviet era. Yeah, they tend to notice that they are their own bottles. And then the problem hits in, because the guy gets a nice little message, because as he's trying to figure out where he's gonna put all the, well, I'm sorry, poop, uh, out. Well, he gets to notice that, yeah, the militia, yeah, the local cops are coming, because, hey, dude, dude, this is just a... Even though we're not trying to oppress you actively, and even though we know that you want to make your own little smuggly business, yeah, this is a bit too much now, isn't it? So, 
he gathers around some local boys because he's a bit panicky because sometimes a nice little cop might come over and this little business would be struck because again obhss guys will come over and be like hey what you doing these aren't supposed to be recycled so he gathers kids from the yard one of them was at that point 13 year old mr nevzorov and he's just asking them hey you know hey kiddos how do we deal with this whole matter because he's ready to pay up some money for that as well because now he you know is expecting some five to seven years in prison and then Mr. Nevzorov had his bright idea, and as he said in his episode, it's a bit of a shame that they picked my thought, because uh, something more useful and more normal should have been picked. See, as this is an inner courtyard of standard little building block with old St. Petersburg buildings, Nevzorov stated that, yeah, you know, putting whole jars, that's a bit bad, and smashing all these jars by hand and then just dumping it somewhere would be too difficult. So Nevzorov manages to encourage people to use a welding machine to cut off a huge-ass balcony to drop off on all of this pile of jars to break them all in bits in one go, and then you would just, you know, slam all the nice little material into the local basement where it would kind of ferment for a while, and then, then I'll figure out stuff out later, but it's just easier than, you know, throwing these all these jars by hand. And they did just that. But it's like this old-school Art Nouveau 19th century balcony, which is huge. At first, I have to also mention the fact that, you know, if you have 15,000 jars of pure fecal matter and pee under a huge sign, donate great country. Yeah, that alone is a joke, but at this point when they managed to cut off this balcony thing and drop it off, it turns out the balcony is pretty huge. It crashes part of the point where the bottles are being accepted to, it crashes down the sign and obviously smashes all the bottles. But one thing, as Mr. Nizorov stated that he hadn't calculated for, was the fact that, well... Yeah, sure, the empty broken bottles are easier to just smash in somewhere rather than all the nice little unbroken bottles. But now you have a huge balcony parts also to deal with, which are a tad bit more difficult to move. But now, imagine this, you have an inner courtyard of a bunch of, like, you know, apartment buildings where this little kiosk where people give in their empty bottles and that had been filled with, like I said, 15,000 jars of various biomatter. And now that has literally a balcony dropped on top of it. So now all this basically is ankle deep in various biomatter. And then the cops arrived. Well, they've sort of stated that this ended kind of nicely with people basically paying off like 25 rubles to each of the cops and cops left totally screaming, just telling that, hey, get this stuff done. And that's where the story ends. But hey, when it came to grabbing money and, and doing crazy shenanigans in a very weird way, yeah. Even being down to the ankles in various biomatter, even that did not stop the Soviet man. And I'm sorry if this is a bit disgusting, but hey, I wanted to make this episode kind of old school style about all the funny stories I heard. Anyways, we'll be back to our more depressing, more serious episodes in the future, but I really hope you enjoyed this kind of more lighthearted, more kind of smugglery, scoundrelly part. And I'm glad to be back. And hey, I hope that this year is going to be even better for all of us, me and you comrades, and the last one. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org 
for more shows like this one, The Dark Myths Void. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.